Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me as always from Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you doing today? It's good. It's hot in Southampton. It's pretty sunny, so... Not much to report. I'm going. I'm going curling on Monday, so that's kind of a bit out of season. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're just there in England. Yeah. So there's a new rink that just opened last week at Preston. At uh, it's called Barton Grange, and I'm taking the junior boys team that I coach up there for a little three day mini camp. Does that uh, does that double the number of curling facilities in England? Yes. So now we have two. And the we're talking about getting a third at Cambridge. So Cambridge, where the university is, Cambridge, England, uh, is building an ice rink, should be open in January. And they're talking about doing an arena club on Monday nights. So oh, wow. we could actually triple our ice in the space of six months, which is pretty exciting. So you're, you're in Southampton uh, for people who aren't familiar with England, like where is the rink that you go to and where is this new one in relation to like London? Uh, so Southampton's basically an hour drive Southeast of London and the rink in, is in Kent, which is about a 40 minute drive Southwest of London. So we're both South, but I've kind of got to go up and over to get to the rink. Okay. And then Preston is just a bit north of Manchester, so it's about a four and a half hour drive from from my house up to the new rank in Preston. Oh wow! So, and that's kind of up against the Welsh border kind of area. Okay. So everything. So, in, is this a pri- is this privately owned, or did I mean did English curling come up with some funding to build this, or how is how how are these how are these rinks funded? Yeah, so actually, what's one of it's weird is that the the Scottish and English model too is really different from the North American model. So mm-hmm. both of the rinks in England are owned privately held by individuals, not even corporations. So this is owned by the new one being built up in Preston's, uh, owned by a guy named Guy Topping, who I think his big business is like a garden center, but he also owns a hotel and a bunch of other businesses around Preston, and okay. then. The rink in Kent is called Fenton's Rink, and it's a gentleman there named Ernest Fenton, and he just he built the rink on his farm, basically. So he's a farmer, cool. and he converted a an old pig a pig barn into, <laughs> or cow barn or something into curling. So it's a three sheeter that used to be in a barn. Does uh, it still smell? It does not smell, but there are lots of flies. Like it's it's kind of a running joke. Like you you, you know if you, if we enforce the burned rock rule strictly, a lot of rocks would be burned by flies falling from the rafters. <laughs> so there's a bit of tolerance there in terms of how we play that. So that one's a three sheeter. How many at the one in Preston? Uh, four sheets. Okay, so, so seven sheets of dedicated curling ice in England now. You're moving yeah. on up. 
Yeah, I think so. And there's, there's, I, I, I don't try to get too far ahead of my, uh, myself here, but there, there's like definitely talk about a few other places. And, you know, the president of English curling, Andy Reid, said, you know, once people figure out there's actually money to be made in curling, and, mm-hmm. and actually there is, um, probably some more people will be willing to invest or kind of put money into facilities. It's just a matter of the, the, the big issue here is land is so expensive in England that, that the initial investment's the kind of big sticking point. But mm-hmm. uh, I think once the rinks get going, they tend to keep running. So it's a, it's a positive sign here for the growth of the game. Cool. Well, here uh, it's almost football season, uh, which means it, I guess, which means worldwide it's almost curling season. It seems like curling season just ended, but yeah, we uh, football starts uh, Labor Day weekend. The Hokies open up on Labor Day night again at Florida State. I am not going to that one. I'll be at the home opener the next week. But I we decided not to make the trip to Tallahassee. I've been to Tallahassee before and I really don't have any interest in going back. Um, <laughs> so yeah, save some money there. Uh, I think the big road trip for me this year is the pit game. Uh, and then I'm actually going back to Oklahoma. I'm going uh, the last weekend in September. We're gonna, I'm going to go back home, see the family and see the Sooners play uh, Baylor. Uh, so that'll be fun. Um, How's Baylor this year? Uh, they're terrible. Well, they should be terrible, just like they so were they're last falling year. Falling back off. Uh, well, yeah, they're that whole thing. Anyway, we won't talk about what happened. at. The- oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, curling wise, we just finished up our little summer season. Uh, we did a month's worth of pickup curling to keep the newcomers uh, involved. And we're going to start back up in September. I have not heard what night of the week we're curling on yet here in Richmond. Uh, if it's Saturday, that means that if they if we only got ice on Saturday, that means that I will not be curling until January. So that'll be fun. So I'm hoping for I'm hoping for Thursday night curling here in Richmond this fall. So but All right. we'll see. Um, it's about how many people can get there and not just about me uh, trying to get to hokey games. So, <laughs> so we actually have a lot of, a lot to talk about. Uh, Cause, and that means that curling season is right around the corner. Cause we actually have news. Um, I guess the big thing, they finally announced what on earth this WCF curling world cup is going to be. Um, so it's a, New addition to the curling calendar, these four events spread out throughout the season, uh, three initial tournaments, and then a grand final that is, I guess, going to cap the curling season. And it's going to be at the beginning of May. So kind of like last year, you know, we've got an event there at the very end that is way late in the curling season, way after uh, the Scotties, the Briar and worlds uh, like a, yeah, more than a month after worlds, I think. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Uh, another long curling season for these guys to go through. I do not envy. I do not envy these teams who are trying to have jobs and, you know, who aren't fully funded and have jobs and are trying to score enough points to qualify for these events. Um, the first three legs uh, of this tournament, this this curling World Cup, 
Uh, the first one is coming up soon. It is September 12th through 16th. The first leg is in Suzhou, China, um, at an arena that seats about 6,000. The second uh, event is the one that we talked about on our last podcast that is coming to uh, the Omaha area at Ralston Arena. Uh, it's It hosts the junior hockey team that's there in Omaha, and it seats about 4,000. Uh, that event is... December 5th through 9th. So it's not the same arena that hosted. Um, it's not the same arena that hosted last year's U uh, S um, Olympic trials or last year's um, curling night in America. It's a different arena. It's smaller. Uh, it's in a, uh, it's in a suburb. So it's a little bit farther away from downtown Omaha than uh, the old arena, but it's going to fit this event better because it's smaller. Uh, the third leg of the Curling World Cup uh, is the European leg, um, January 30th through February 3rd in Jönköping, Sweden at the Jönköping Curling Club, uh, which means my guess is I, I looked and that's like a six sheet club. So my guess is they'll play on four sheets and have temporary bleachers set up, I guess, because I can't imagine I can't imagine a lot of people are going to attend that because Jönköping is kind of in the middle of nowhere in Sweden. It's between uh, two of the major cities uh, there in Sweden. It's kind of in the middle of the country on a lake, not really near anything. And that'll be in the middle, uh, you know, at the end of January. So not exactly a tourist destination. Uh, and then, so that finishes. Well, the facilities up. are really good. Like we played in Ostersund, which is yeah. like, well, they call it mid-suite and it's way up there. Yeah. <laughs> and like the arena is really nice. It's honestly the nicest, uh, nicest kind of non-professional sports arena I've ever been in. Okay. Like it was like good seats, really good facilities. Uh, you know, Sweden really does invest in its infrastructure, especially for sports. So this, this thing pretty good. This looks kind of like uh, the Duluth Curling Club. Um, yeah. High high ceilings. Uh, is Duluth six or eight? I forget. Duluth's eight, I think. Okay. This one's this one I think is six, but yeah, kind of the same high you know high roof. Um, you know, six sheets of ice. So you know, it'll be it'll be a good setup, honestly, because it's a curling club that may be the best curling because they're going to have really good ice, I assume. Um, and then the grand final closes out the season May 8th through 12th in Beijing. They have not announced where that is going to be. Um, so kind of an interesting format. They did, uh, so they set it up the first three, um, first three legs are going to be the same eight teams in the men's women's and doubles. So eight countries though, not eight teams, right? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Same eight countries. My apologies. Uh, and then, you know, the different federations can switch in who they want to play in those. I, I imagine some of the federations will send the same one to all three. Um, and so is it, is it Olympic seating or not? Like, is it basically the top eight teams from the Olympics or? It doesn't look like it. It looks like they kind of mix it up to get the two North American teams and then a mix of European and Asia Pacific teams or Pacific Asia teams. Uh, okay. Um, so 
and it's kind of weird. So you're not going to have teams moving in and out of these three legs. And it's the, so four federations have teams in all three disciplines, men's, women's, and doubles. Um, the U S Canada, Sweden, and China have teams in all three. Uh, mm-hmm. and then the other four teams in each discipline kind of move around, uh, on the men's side, in addition to the U S Canada, Sweden, and China, you have Scotland, Japan, Switzerland, Norway. On the women's side, you have Scotland, Japan, Korea, Russia, and in doubles, you have Korea, Russia, Switzerland, and Norway. So, so they probably did the host countries. Yep. Plus Canada. Yep. And then try to sprinkle high-rated countries. Yeah. And yeah, the see, one I'm just trying to like figure out backwards from the listing how they picked those teams, those countries. And the weird one to me is the Switzerland women did not make it, and they've only won four of the last seven world championships. Um, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you leave them out. They they didn't do great at the last Olympics and last Worlds, but you look at what they've done recently and how strong those teams are. It's kind of amazing that they're not included. Yeah, no, it's absurd, right? It's a bit. Uh, I mean, yeah, they've they've been the dominant power internationally uh, for the last two cycles, really. Yeah. Um, so the only yeah. way, well, no, the Switzerland women won a medal. I thought. In what? In the Olympics? In the, yeah. I think uh, they. Str- I can look. I can look that up while we're talking so about that. this. But I'm pretty sure that they. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they kind of struggled at worlds but did but i'm pretty sure they meddled at the olympics um so they're left out the only way that they can make that grand final is if they win worlds so the way that they're going to decide the eight teams for that grand final in beijing at the end of may is you will have china the host country the winners of the three previous legs the winner of worlds and then a special invitation team um, which is probably their way to get Canada into it if Canada doesn't qualify another way. Um, it's interesting. So if the same country wins two of the three legs, they still only get one grand final spot. But if the country wins all three legs, then they get three grand final spots. So it's like, a, a pair of aces uh, won't win, but if you get that third ace, then you win the hand. Basically, is what it sounds like. So, you know, Canada is sen- Canada is sending its teams to uh, to these three legs. If they win, let's say they win in Sweden and the U.S., then they Canada still only gets one of the spots in the grand final. But if Canada wins in all three of those legs, you're going to see three Canadian teams at the grand final. Is kind of the way it shakes out. Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of interesting, right? Because yeah. um, it does incentivize a country to play well on that third leg, even mm-hmm. if they already have a berth. But if they only have one, that, I guess it's kind of weird. If a team, yeah. if a country goes in with two two championships, and they got to play in the third leg. They got something to play for. Yeah. But if they're, I they're think one and that. not one a second, then there's not much incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a bit weird. You're kind of, and they're, they've, they've got some different rules 
than we're used to for most WCF events, but a lot of the rules we've seen um, in Grand Slam events. So they're going to play eight ends. Uh, thinking time is per end instead of per game, which I really like. They played that at the Elite 10 last year, and I really liked what that did. It moved things along, um, and I think it also helped the scoring because um, you can't, you know, you can't try to bank time. Um, your you yeah. know your time is set per end, so it encouraged it encouraged high scoring ends. Uh, the really interesting thing that they're doing is also another thing that they've done at the Elite 10 Grand Slam is there are no extra ends. And once you, if you are tied after eight, it's decided by a one stone shootout, which I assume is whoever, maybe not necessarily the skips, but whoever you want throwing that one stone. Um, and this kind of completely changes your strategy. And the way, the other way they're doing it is, uh, so you get three for the for standings purposes, you get three points for a regulation win, two points if you win by shootout, and one point if you lose in a shootout. So, I think that helps. I think that I like that, but I like that better than just a straight um, using draw shot challenge to break ties. I think that that'll. I think using this point system keeps us from having as many ties in the standings. Um, but yeah, the, the, the point system based on whether you win in regulation and not playing a full extra, I think completely changes your strategy, right? Oh yeah. It's a big, big difference. Right. Uh, and that, that'll matter also, I think, especially towards the end of the week where you might see a team get really risk averse if they're like weeding the standings mm-hmm. They may say, well, the tie and locking in the one point here yep. is is better than risking it and going hard for the win, mm-hmm. right? And ending up with none. So, and if you're uh, a team, if you're a team that needs that three points to try and get in, like if you if you're not in, if you're tying with two points or getting in with three points, that completely changes your last two ends too. Yeah, exactly. So, it, so it could create some weird situations where some teams are going for ties, and other situations where teams are taking all out risk for the win mm-hmm. as opposed to going to the shootout. So. That'll definitely make for good TV. Uh, I like. I also like the new thinking time rule. I think that's a lot more effective. I think some teams might uh, like the Kui team, although it's a new team, so maybe they don't chat as much. But like the Kui team is kind of notorious for running clock and you know having some really long ends. That made actually. It might affect a team like that that tends to use a lot of clock but doesn't use it kind of consistently. Well, does burn clock where they need it versus a team that's kind of a bit more clock efficient. So it might be interesting to see what effect that has. The, uh, the, the guys on the game of stones podcast mentioned that when they were talking, mentioned the Kui team, when they were talking about this. And if you haven't listened to game of stones, they're a good podcast. You should subscribe to them. They've been putting out some really good content over the summer. Um, but yeah, during the elite 10, the Kui team and the McEwen team were the teams that were having to run back down to the hack to get rid of rocks before they ran out of time and ends. Um, yeah, with uh, going back to no extra ends, the guys that I'm really interested to hear what they think about this are Jerry Gertz from Curling Zone because, you know, he puts together, you know, he helps those teams put together their strategies based on who they're playing. 
So that's going to, yeah. this might completely, this throws kind of a wrench into, into his thinking. I'd be interested to see what advice he would give to teams when going for these points. Uh, and then our resident poker player in curling, uh, Jason Gunlickson, who kind of knows, you know, always knows the odds and always knows what results are going to increase his chances to win. I'm really interested to hear uh, what he has to think about this. And we'll actually, Gunner, they're sending Gunner to the second leg in Omaha. So hopefully we'll get a chance to see him on TV, uh, mic'd up, thinking through all of this. Um, of course, we also have no idea what the TV info is. I imagine regardless of whether there's a TV contract or not, we'll be able to see this on YouTube through World Curling Federation. But he's the one I want to see mic'd up playing these new rules. Yeah, no, I think he'll be pretty good at that. I, I think it's, I'm trying to think it through without without seeing how it plays out exactly. Mm-hmm. It's an odd situation. In some ways, it actually might end up being um, promoting a bit more defensive or what I'd call like negative tactics, right? That there is an argument, like if you I kind of think of like a classic curling shot, like Dave Murdoch's shot, uh, the double, like the run double that he called uh, in the Olympics in 2014 to to get to the gold medal game. Do you remember that shot? Or uh, he had no. a pretty. He had an open draw to tie, and he had a like a, a good run back double. It was a tough shot, but it was there to to kind of score two and win. Mm-hmm. And he took the run double right. And uh, they asked him after the game on BBC at least, why do you call that when you could have just gone to the extra end? And he was like, well, the odds when you're tied against a team like a Dean. Without hammers, you're going to lose. So it actually mm-hmm. forced you to take a, a game whisk winning shot. In that situation, you almost have to draw now. So actually, there's a weird way in which you, it sounds like it's creating more offense. But someone like Murdoch's probably got to take the the draw to lock the shot and then say, "Well, actually, I've got better odds." Yeah. Uh, now, right? It's a, it's a bit like in soccer, right? Where yeah. just watching the World Cup. If a team's not convinced they can put the game away in the last 10, 15 minutes, they'll play for extra time and they'll play for penalties, right? Oh, and yeah. I, I, I wouldn't and you be surprised have, if some teams if play for penalties at the start. Huh? If some teams playing for penalties at the start of some of those games. <laughs> yeah, and it, it might actually kind of backfire in a weird way, right? Because it, it basically turns it to a penalty shootout as opposed to a win-loss thing. So... It, I'd be curious to see. I could see it kind of creating a lot of crazy offense. I could actually also see it in some weird way. Uh, teams might say, "Fine, we'll just take our one point, lock that in, and take the coin flip draw shot challenge," which is basically what it is at that level. Well, we basically every, every single skip in that tournament is going to be able to cover the pin pretty consistently. So, and we we say promote offense. Really, we're saying promote draws promote rocks in play because you can have 16 rocks in play and still only have one point go up on the scoreboard. So, you know, when you're looking at a curling scoreboard and seeing a bunch of ones go on the board, odds are those might have been exciting ends and you had guys getting forced to one or having to make draws to get one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so you may, but you may, it may have some weird, I'm just kind of like not so sold on it playing out the way they think it is. So I'm definitely curious to see how that plays out uh, for sure. I, I, and then don't they also have, what are the other ones? So the time, what, what are um, the other rules they have? So the shootout, which I don't really, I don't like a one stone shootout. I wish it was at least two different players having to, to take shots, uh, preferably each player doing one. Um, I mean, that takes, that takes a lot of time, still not as much time as a full extra end, but 
I would say at least, you know, at least have two different players playing those, those shootout shots. And then, you know, adding up the full distance from the pin, I think is a better indicator than just one, one stone from each, from each team. Um, The other thing that they did was the format for the, for each of the legs is you have two pools of four. Those two pools are going to play a double round robin against each other for a total of six games per team. And then the top teams from each pool are going to play each other uh, to, to decide the champion of that particular leg. It's kind of weird. So there's an opportunity. There's the chance that the U S will not play Canada. Um, if they're not in this, if they're in the same pool, they'll play them twice. If they are in separate pools, they're not going to play them. And, you know, it's weird to me. So I hope they at least mix up the pools um, throughout these legs. Uh, so that'll that'll be another wrinkle to watch as they're announcing more about these events. It's uh, it's all just really weird. I don't really I understand why they did it, um, but I still would probably prefer just do a full round robin and then take the top two for the championship game. Yeah, so I like, I, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I, I My hunch is it's just ice time, right? Because you're yeah. running three events simultaneously. Yeah. And uh, it, it just for a facility like that, it's minimum four hours you got to block out uh, maybe f- uh, for each draw, just in terms of like the ice prep in between, the pregame practice, all that stuff, right? So it's not like club play where you have two hours, the next team comes out two hours later. So, so it's, it's probably just ice time that even adding one extra game to each pool probably adds a full extra day to the event. Uh, but yeah, if I had my druthers, it would be, well, I would do it one of two ways. I maybe cut it down to seven for each thing. I just have a 16 round Robin, uh, and then the winner or, uh, see if they could add an extra day and make eight teams, seven team round robin. And actually, I'd like a semi. I like kind of old school semi final for second and third, and first gets a bye yeah. in the final. Uh, but uh, I, but it's good. I mean, it's good for more curling, I think. And it's this is basically a slam level tournament, but internationally. Yeah. So that's it's kind of good to grow the game that way. I like right? it. And you've I got, mean, I like I like the idea yeah. of this where you've got national teams rather than formed um, sponsored teams, I guess would be the term to use. Um, so I, I, I do, I like that aspect of it. The format's kind of weird. I don't know, maybe it'll grow on me, but we'll see, uh, here in a little over a month. It's the first real big event. I mean, they'll have, they've got a few, I mean, shoot right now, they've got a, uh, bond spiel going on in, uh, or a cash spiel going on in Japan. Um, so the cash spiel season has started already. And the first big event is that first curling world cup game in China. So it'll be interesting to see how we can watch those, um, both here in North America and in your neck of the woods, uh, or if we just got to watch them on YouTube. So it'll be interesting. Probably YouTube for me. So it's like maybe, so Euros here ends up on Eurosport, which is kind of like a pan European sports network. And then just about everything else is YouTube, except sometimes BBC will cover like random things. Like they covered the Perth ladies two years ago, but they did it in Gaelic. Really? Scottish Gaelic, which like <laughs> nobody in Scotland that I've met speaks Scottish Gaelic. I didn't even know there was Scottish Some, Gaelic. 
It's like, I mean, yeah, it's like the old Celtic regions, but it's not like, it's not like Ireland where there's been like an effort to bring yeah. the language back. Weird. Right? It's, it was just a weird, a are there weird that thing. many, then, I mean, uh, in Scotland, are there that many people, one who speak it or two speak it and are also curlers? Uh, no. So to me, the, the weird, th- so what, what it is, is there's a, there's a BBC channel called Alba, which is like the Scottish Gaelic channel. And so part of the, their government owned. So part of their funding comes from doing stuff that supports culture. So I think that the thinking was combine a Scottish sport with like promoting the, the Gaelic language or something. It was a bit, weird. bit odd, but you know the the curling coverage here is really thin. It's may, you maybe BBC picks up one or two events a year, maybe outside of uh, outside of the Olympics, and then Eurosport does the Euros every year, uh, and that's about it. Who so co- who covers worlds? So normally YouTube for me if I'm trying to watch curling, or uh, I uh, borrow my sister's uh, cable login and do a bunch of fancy internet stuff to watch uh, TSN. Uh, who covers worlds out there? Uh, no one. It's, I just oh. watched WCF feed. Oh. WCF YouTube feed. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is weird because like netball, they have like like women's netball gets covered on Sky, whereas curling doesn't. And actually, I think curling gets a lot of attention when the Olympics are around. So it's it's not an unknown sport. It just for whatever reason hasn't yet picked up a, a TV contract. Okay. So we do, yeah. So we've got, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how we're able to watch those. Uh, we also have some news, you know, the, the silly season, uh, has finally spread to the rest of the world. We, we got it, uh, in Canada pretty quickly, uh, but we're starting to see some team changes, uh, elsewhere in the world, Japan, um, the team, the team that we're used to seeing on the men's side from Japan appears to have disbanded, uh, team Morizumi, uh, they represented, uh, Japan at worlds from 2013 to 2017 and represented them at the Pacific Asia championship from 2012 to 2017. Um, Mm -hmm. what was also interesting was back in May, they won the Pacific Asia Championship playdown over the Iwe team that we saw from Japan at last year's Worlds. So this team is disbanded. Uh, the reason that kind of happened was their third Tetsuro Shimizu uh, left the team and joined uh, a team that had finished second to Iwe at last year's Japanese Championship. So that team becomes a very strong team. You know, they were they were second in the Japanese championship last year. Now they add the third from the team that was basically the Japanese national team. Uh, and then the fifth from the Morizumi team left and formed his own team. And they're actually doing really well at that Hokkaido Bank uh, spiel that's going on right now. So Morizumi is a free agent. I don't know if he's ta- taking a step back from the sport, but right now your top teams on the men's side in Japan is now that Iwe team with uh, Go Aoki, who was a big time shot maker at last year's Worlds, really young team. I think they just aged out of juniors. 
Um, so that team's a team to watch for years to come in Japan. And then the Abe team that added uh, Morizumi's third, Tetsuro Shimizu, and then this new team that Morizumi's fifth uh, started on his own. Um, but the Iwe team appears to be the main team from Japan. And in fact, that is the team that they are sending to Curling Night in America, I believe, uh, later this month. Uh, on the women's side in Japan, uh, the team that we're used to seeing on the women's side, Fujisawa, uh, they won their Pacific Asia uh, play down. Uh, so they appear to still be playing. Uh, the team they beat was the Kawana team that we saw at Worlds last year. That team seems to have remained the same as well. So those are probably the top two teams on the women's side. Um, another name that you may have heard in the past, uh, Ayumi Ogasawa. Uh, Ogasawara, I'm sorry. Uh, she was a three-time Olympian. She appears to have retired, and her team is now skipped by her third. So those are probably your top three teams on the women's side in Japan. Um, I don't know how they kind of run their teams. I don't know if they're self, if they are self-made or if the, or if it's kind of like Great Britain where the government steps in and kind of helps decide the teams. It'd be interesting to have JD Lind on here to talk about that. Uh, I didn't, I'd be interested to find out about all that from him. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't. I really have a, a clear handle on. Uh, uh, I I know a few people from the World Beast from the Asia Pacific, but they're more the like I know some of the Australian people and I know the Hong Kong people and kind of just chat with them. But uh, I I don't think Japan is coach formed. I think it's self. It's I think in, it's kind of self formed ish. And they do it but. weird. It's kind of based on. Uh, on your hometown almost because um, you'll have teams from Sapporo teams from the Nagano area, which I think are the two main regions um, yeah. like the Hokkaido championship uh, that's going on now. That's that's in Sapporo, which is that, that, that Northern Island, not the same Island that Tokyo is on. Uh, and then you get yeah. down uh, Nagano is kind of sort of near Tokyo. And that's like the secondary region uh so it's very regionalized i think um yeah i don't know how many facilities they even have i mean once you get out of canada to be honest it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's you where have, the you don't have many are located <laughs> right like if you want to crawl in england or the, well as of this week yeah. there's two places but you know if you're a kid and we have this all the time we'll get emails to the english curling association hey i want to curl i'm a 14 year old kid but i live four hours oh, from the no. You're out of luck, kind of thing, right? So I assume it's the same in Japan, where they probably have a couple of facilities. But if you didn't grow up near one of those rinks, uh, you're probably not even following the sport. Yeah, following the sport certainly won't have a chance to get to the Olympics. So that's just that's just how it is. But uh, more changes uh, in your neck of the woods that you can actually probably give us some insight on. Uh, the British curling sorting hat has spoken. Um, so we have some new teams in Scotland slash Great Britain, uh, Eve Muirhead, uh, Anna Sloan has taken a step back from curling and they've replaced her with Jennifer Dodds at third. The rest of the team, I believe remains the same. Uh, Hannah Fleming, who we saw at last year's worlds, uh, has also taken a step back from curling. On the men's side, uh, the Muat team remains the same. 
Uh, and the most interesting move there was the Kyle Smith team that went to the Olympics. Kyle Smith was the skip at the Olympics. He has moved down to third, and that team is going to be skipped by Glenn Muirhead. So you have on the men's side, the, the Muet team that did really well at Worlds remains the same. The new Muirhead men's team is Glenn Muirhead, Kyle Smith, Thomas Muirhead, and Cammy Smith. And that's two sets. Is that two sets of brothers? Yep. So cool. the Smith brothers and then the Muirheads are Eve's brothers. Yep. So, um, getting- so Jonathan, since that's your neck of the woods, since the Muit team didn't have any changes and they kind of messed around with Kyle Smith's team, is it safe to assume that the Muit team is kind of the favored team in the eyes of British curling? Well, so that's, it's a bit of a, I think especially in North America is a bit of a misperception of how the teams uh, are formed, right? So I, I assume most people kind of get that impression based off the 2014 Olympics. When they, uh, where Murdoch yeah, when they kind of, uh, was kind of initially added as the fifth. Mm-hmm. And then he wound up taking and, over for Brewster's team. And he ended up taking over for Brewster's team. And that was when... Soren Gran, who's Swedish, but was kind of coaching the British team, kind of ran the program then. And he's very much of the kind of school of thought where the coach should decide the lineup and the players. Mm-hmm. And he, he really believes in kind of coach form teams, professionally run. And his arguments really, you know, show me another team sport where the coach doesn't do okay. that. And he's, you know, he's got a valid point there, right? You wouldn't, you know. You wouldn't be too happy if uh, the Hokies were a self-formed college football team, I imagine, right? So, <laughs> so he's like, you know, maybe it would go um, better. <laughs> it may go better, but you never know, right? So that that's one school of thought. the the head the head uh, the kind of what's called the high performance director in this day and age, right? So not really the head coach, but the person who basically runs the whole program now. So in kind of the equivalent to Soren's position is Tony Zumak, or at least he was at the end of the last quad. I haven't heard of any, any shakeups, although mm-hmm. shakeups also happen at the coaching level at this point in the cycle too. But he, he kind of came up very much through the Canadian system. Uh, he's from Saskatchewan, I think originally, or Western Canada. And mm-hmm. I think like a disciple of Bill Sherhart, who ran the Canadian Olympic center for, for 12 or 10, for 10, 12 years, the Canadian curling program. And once he got in there, he shifted a, the program away from coach decided to, he didn't quite say it was self-formed teams, but basically said, we want athlete input too. And once that happened, you saw a lot of kind of interesting moves even before that. So actually with Mullet, Grant Hardy joined the team last year. And he, mm-hmm. he was really the guy who I think took that team from being a good team to a great team. He was kind of the difference maker at third. Like the, you had other good pieces in every other position, but adding him really seemed to have shot them up the rankings. And was that a, uh, was that their call or was that, uh, was that the team's call or was that uh, British curling's call? I think that was their call. So, okay. so Grant Hardy actually, so like he probably wasn't on anyone's radar because he was just curling around Scotland. But he he basically had his own team. He was kind of barnstorming around the Scottish curling tour, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the the Bonspiels up there. The weird thing about Scottish curling tours is it's not registered for the order of merit points, so it doesn't track 
Like, like people who perform well there aren't going to pop up on curling zone on the world standings, right? But I, I assume he's just going around Scotland because he lives in Scotland mm-hmm. and he's, you know, a young guy just out of uni. So not doesn't have much money to be flying all over the place to spiel in Japan or whatever and get points. And he just had a team and he he did really well on that and then entered the, like Tom Brewster hosts like a, a WCT level event. Uh, right before the Worlds every year at Aberdeen. And he I, I'm not sure if he won it outright or kind of went made a really deep run against like the McEwens and the Schusters okay. and like the top 20 kind of like tier of teams. So he, he like basically went and threw up some numbers. And I think if you're a team looking to kind of maybe shake things up, you're going to take a look at people who are doing really well and try to get them on your team. So that that's how he got roped into the, roped into the Moet team. He also won the mixed that year. So uh, you know, I think that was just kind of a natural, natural pairing. Uh, where are yeah. you ranked on the Scottish tour, uh, curling tour standings? Last year, <laughs> the, the year before, right? The year before was the team joke. Is it the year before that I was ahead of McEwen? <laughs> <laughs> so there was, so basically we went quarterfinals and, uh, I guess, yeah, it was last year. So it was last year. Yeah, it was, it was, it was on our team group chat. It was like, you know, send the picture around and laugh our heads off. So basically we entered and got to a semifinal uh-huh. and lost and McEwen entered, I think lost in a quarterfinal at Aberdeen's kind of the cash spiel thing. Scottish curling tour doesn't differentiate by strength of field or points or anything else. So you basically get points for, I think it's like 16 for a win, eight for a semifinal, mm-hmm. four for qualifying. And so we had eight, Bruce uh, McEwen had four. So if you took out the rankings, team done was ahead of McEwen in the Scottish curling tour, which I thought was great job, guys. Hilarious. <laughs> we should have hung up there. Anyway, so uh, it's it's I mean, its own thing, right? I, I I suspect at some point they're gonna have to integrate that into the the world curling tour system. Cause I actually think it's to me, it's like one of my rants is a bit of a disadvantage to Maybe maybe not tier two, but European tier three teams. You know, like like a lot of a lot of kind of B pool, C pool, Euro teams come over and play in the Scottish curling tour events just to get experience, like the Polish national team or maybe the Slovakian team. Sometimes you'll see the Czechs come over, and they can't get points doing that. Even mm-hmm. if you get like negligible points, it helps a bit. Like we got our we managed to get the English Championships ranked for points last year, and that got us like. 400th in the world for our third place finish in that. Nice. Um, but if you get earn a little bit of points, that can then help you climb up. If you're a team that's trying to build or get national funding, you know, you can start picking – there's more events that you can get to because in Europe, there's really a big chasm. Like, like one of my jokes to my team is – and this is like literally true. It would be the same bond spiel. And you'll play a team where people are sliding out on their knees and then the next game, if you win that, you're playing like, you know, the Swedish B team or a team you see on TV. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's not, there's not that mid tier you have in North America of tier two, tier three. It's either fully funded elite teams or, um, or kind of just like not very strong club curlers. So there's just a gap there that needs to be filled somehow. Um, how, but to get back to the the Muirhead team you're asking about or the Glenn Muirhead team. Yeah. 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 Do we, do we assume that Muit is the favorite team since they moved, they basically kicked Kyle Smith down to third and gave him a new skip. So I don't think they kick. I don't think I, I would not read it that yeah. way. Like if I'm reading between the lines, probably what happened is 
Tom probably said, I want to crawl with my brother, which is totally like reasonable. And they probably sat down and Kyle, I know in the past has actually said he wants to curl with his brother, Cammy. So uh, I think they basically said, let's have a brother's team and probably uh, for whatever reason they decide that Glenn, I mean, Glenn's a bit older, has a bit more experience. Maybe he's ready to take that skipping roll on head on. And maybe Kyle wanted to try playing third for a bit. Uh, and they kind of okay. want to try that as a lineup. They may also adjust it a bit. I think some of these teams are a bit more fluid with lineup, right? So like the Patterson lineup, this guy, so you've got it down as Patterson, Waddle, Menzies, Goodfellow. Yeah. Like Goodfellow has been skipping a bit in the past, but he's not, he's down as playing lead on this. Or I don't know. They keep rotating the lineups of the other teams. So I think it's a bit more. Uh, a bit more flexible. Does, does that move? Um, uh, how, does that move strengthen the Kyle Smith team? Because I know we saw him at the Olympics, and they, I think, got into a tiebreaker. But does that? How much better does that make that team with Glenn Muirhead in there? Uh, I mean, I, th- I, he's definitely an upgrade at shot making over Waddle, okay. right? I think the question, um, uh, yeah, and I think you know, like Kyle had so. They don't. So the other thing that's a bit of a misnomer is the Scottish, the, the Team GB system now is almost purely points. So Kyle Smith got to go to the Olympics because the year before the Olympics he cracked the top twenty-five, okay. right? And and uh, Murdoch and Brewster weren't even close in terms of the standings, right? There's there's a rule if you're within X number of spaces or points you can have a challenge, but Smith put up a really good year. Um, I think coming out of the gate, because Muet's an established team and they had a good record last year, they'll probably bank a lot of points this year too. And they're also going to get invited to better events than uh, the Muirhead team is out of the gate. But this year is kind of the building year. You don't really worry too much about where you are standings-wise this year because that's not going fi- to fix into the final standings come selection time in three years' time. This year's your build year, figure out what you got year, and then the next two years really go for it and try to build up the point total. So I think they're they were thinking full Olympic cycle. Okay. And you know, I think Glenn's late, late twenties right now. So he's early thirties, kind of entering the prime age as a skip in four years' time. And the rest of those guys would be late twenties. So that'd be a pretty good, pretty good team, I think. I think it'll it'll be between Muet and Muirhead for sure if they stick together in four years' so you've time. Got- Patterson rink's kind of interesting because they're all – it kind of leads to me like people in the program who didn't get onto one of the top two teams, which is perhaps a bit harsh. But it kind of seems like if I look at it, it's not – like it's not really clear what the lineup mm. is. Ross Patterson doesn't have too much experience skipping. I mean, is Kyle actually going to be playing third? I- Kyle Waddle playing So I think I went straight off of what they what their press release said. Yeah. So I think that they. So that's. I mean, I could see that one a bit in flux. I mean, I like Duncan Menzies is like a beast of a sweeper. Mm-hmm. Like he's just he's got a. It's a bit of an unorthodox sweeping technique, but boy, he can drag the rock. So you definitely want him front end. They're all good shooters. Um, it's probably a. It's, I mean, it's a kind of a. It's a good set of individuals. I'm not really sure how it functions as a unit. Like obviously the track record's there for Muet, and I, I feel like you're adding one extra player in on the well now Muirhead team. It's not as big a shakeup, but the Patterson Waddle Menzies, Goodfellow combo. Who knows what's going to happen there? So. So the European uh, the European Championship is in November. The Scottish Championship is in February. How does Team G or how does Scotland? 
determine who represents them at the Euro and then is the winner of the Scottish Championship like your automatic uh, team that's going to the Worlds or do they kind of, or do they use that point system? Uh, no. So um, Europeans is a, cha- a challenge system. I'm not sure how they qualify for that. I think that's a points qualifier. It's normally like four teams or, or best of, or two team uh, playoff. So it's not as big an event. Uh, and the winner of that then goes to Euros. I think last year they just had, did Kyle Smith just go? I think they, they used it as an Olympic tune-up last That's year. Not, that would, that would make sense. Had play down. Yeah. And then the World Curling Championships is just a straight old-fashioned play-down system. Okay. So, uh, and that's, I mean, they're, they're actually in big trouble in Scotland. Like last, they're, they're not even filling the field anymore. Like last year, I think it was nine on the men's side. And two of those, I think were junior teams, uh, women's sides, like down to six or five or something. Uh, so it's like the, the, this teams just aren't signing up anymore for, uh, the play downs. And I think part of that is having talked to some competitive curlers up there who aren't kind of funded curlers, uh, the rationale is, yeah, I'm a great, you know, enjoy mm-hmm. curling, enjoy playing down, but why would I take a week off work just to get destroyed by teams that are paid to practice all the time? And so it's kind of been a bit of a vicious circle sitting in then because now that you can just sign up and play. Some people feel like actually it's not even an accomplishment to say you play in the Scottish championships. They don't even bother anymore. So there's a bit of a another one of these effects where as the elite level gets more competitive, it's having a bit of a negative effect on what I call the competitive level of the game, those kind of top end of the club, go out and bond spiel kind of level curlers. Cause those numbers are really down in Scotland. Yeah, it's similar to what they're seeing in Canada, I believe as well. So we saw Scotland last year at curling night in America, which is a event that for better or worse is back. Uh, it's being taped August 27th through 29th, this time at the Chaska Curling Club, which is a very nice facility from what I've heard. Uh, And it will air October through December. Uh, Like last year, they are basically the only people who are going to know the results of these games are going to be the people who show up at the curling club and watch them. Uh, The four teams involved are the US, Japan, China, who have been, those three teams have been involved in, I think, all of the previous curling night in America editions. And this year, an interesting addition as the fourth team is team Italy, which features a coach that you mentioned earlier. Our friend Soren Gran is now the Italian coach. Uh, they are sending their top team, which is uh, the Joel Retornas team uh, that has Amos Masoner throwing fourth stone. So that will be a good, to, that'll be that'll be a good matchup for the U.S. men, um, and I believe I saw the U.S. are sending uh, Nina Roth, John Schuster, and the Hamiltons. So the three, the three Olympic teams, I think, are going to be the U.S. representatives. Um, and Nina Roth's team is also going to that first World Cup event, so they're going to play in Curling Night in America, and then two weeks later they will be in China for the first world cup event. Uh, Schuster is not going to that event. It's going to be 
the Persinger team, Persinger and Ruinen that we saw uh, at Worlds, they're going to that Chinese that first uh, Chinese event in the World Cup. But Curling Night in America will be the three Olympic teams. Uh, Joel Retorna is from Italy. Uh, the in, at least on the men's side, a new Italian women's team that I think is newly formed, and in fact. Uh, Soren Gran, um, as you said, the coach kind of determining the lineups has kind of switched things up and, uh, Veronica Zapponi, who I believe usually skips that team is going to be playing doubles instead of playing on the women's team. According to what I saw, uh, China has not announced its team and we will see the two world championship teams from Japan at this event as well. So. What do you think of the field and would you watch this if you were still in the States? Well, I, okay. So what I was, this field's actually good. I think it's a, so it's, you said this earlier with the world cup. I like the fact that it's countries, not teams. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think curling's at the level like tennis or golf where people are just going to turn it on to watch kind of unnamed, you know, named people, like individuals who are just kind of free agents versus you put it, you see a national team kit, you cheer for that country. It's you've automatically got like a buy-in for, for cheering for it. So I think that part's good. And I think that the teams they have are actually interesting, right? Like it's a bit, bit more diverse. It's not always Canada, 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 which I, which I kind of like, cause I get, you know, while the teams are obviously really strong in Canada, I get kind of tired of watching Gushu versus Cooley <laughs> all the time. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a good kind of set of teams. I I don't get why they tape delay it by like you you have to because it, yeah you have to because it's it's a made for TV event. Um, you know, NBC Sports Network isn't going to show this event live. I, I just don't think that that's hmm. going to happen. And what what I've kind of accepted with this event is it's not for me. It's not for someone who follows this sport regularly. It's, it, it's, it's basically, it's the equivalent of U.S. curling buying an infomercial on NBC Sports Network for yeah. the sport and for USA curling. Yeah, I guess yeah, that makes so sense. It, I mean, I haven't not, yeah. seen many of them. So, have, what does it look like when it's finally produced? Is it because the, the, res, the response I've seen is not great from the curling fans I follow on social media? To be honest, yeah, and and, it, and it's not supposed it's it's not supposed to be. To be honest, um, you know, it, it's for people who are flipping through and see that curling is on because this usually, this is going to be on Friday nights. It's probably going to be on, I think I saw, you know, the, the start times vary, but it's basically sometime between 8 PM Eastern and 11 PM Eastern. The games start. It's a two hour package. They usually show the first couple of stones per end, and then they have a commercial break and then they come back and show the last four stones of the end, or they'll show, or they'll go to commercial and show the last six stones of the end. Um, you know, it's 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 an edited product. Um, I think that's the other thing that helps is they can kind of edit to you know when you have games that end early, you can kind of edit together um, 
a two-hour package that still includes other games that are going on because they play i think three games at a time uh when they when they do these draws in late august yeah um you know it's for people who are new to curling it's not for it's not for you and i it's not for most of the people who are listening to this podcast it's for people who are somewhat interested in this sport and hopefully will watch this and see the USA USCA commercial in the middle of it that says find your local curling club and then go out and do it is that that's who this is for it is a it is a infomercial for US uh, USA curling and to be honest I'm okay with that do you so here's my question because this all happened after I left the US have you noticed any uptick in interest at your clubs when it's on you get people emailing the club or tweeting at the club or I don't know. I don't know about the club because I don't I don't run our accounts, but I know that my friends tweet at me when they see that curling is on NBC Sports Network. Like, did you see that shot or I can't believe I'm watching curling or anything like that? And I'll always reply to them with, by the way, our next learn to curl is whatever date. So, yeah, I see (laughs) there is it's it's, you know, my friends notice that. And because I talk about it all the time, sometimes they'll sit there and watch it and they'll go, Oh, this is kind of cool. Um, the curling itself hasn't been great. They're using club rocks. It's club ice. So it's not, you know, the ice isn't perfect, but you can't blame the ice. The rocks aren't those ping pong balls that you see at, uh, the briar and worlds. Um, so the shot making isn't quite as good. Um, but, you know, the gameplay is fine. It'll be interesting to see because n- probably no one in this, this will probably be the first tournament for a lot of these teams, uh, except for those Japanese teams who right now are playing in this Hokkaido championship and the ones that are getting sent to Curling Night look to be doing pretty good, especially the Iwe team. They appear to be dominating. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how those teams play considering it's late August. Yeah. Um, it'll also be in- the the ice conditions will also be interesting depending on what the temperatures are in suburban Minneapolis when this is taped. Um, but yeah, it's it's something to get people who don't usually talk about curling noticing curling. Curious how Schuster will perform out of the gate. I mean, the, the Olympic yeah. hangover has got to be a <laughs> a pretty big hangover. And, it, and it's going to be their first event with the new lineup with yeah. Chris Plies playing at third. So that's another thing to watch. So it, in, in those terms, it'll, that, that makes it interesting to watch, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll watch it when I'll watch it the weekends that I'm at home. Uh, but October to December, a lot of Fridays I'm on the road to Blacksburg. So We'll see how many of those I actually get to see and and how and how it looks. Uh, I know it, it's a the reason curling people don't like it is a lot of the broadcast is spent discussing the rules and why things are happening and what you know what curling is. Um, and if you're in if you're NBCSN, honestly, you can't assume. You have to assume that most of your audience watching that, that it's probably their first time watching curling. 
Yeah, I think I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, I think yeah. Vic Router is the master at that, right? Like he he asks yeah. questions all the time on the TSN feed where you know he knows it. I mean, he's been covering curling for you know whatever twenty plus years now, but he's he's asking questions that are sort of dumb just to feed it to Russ and Cheryl to get to get uh, some info, right? So I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I, and I like that. I like that route. NBCSN, it's kind of spoon-fed to you. Um, it's kind of, you know, here's, you know, they're going to throw two shots per, each Each player's going to throw two shots per end, and they're going to remain in the same position throughout the game. Um, you know, so, so people like me will kind of turn it off uh, but it's it's not it's not for us. It is to get people interested in USA curling who don't know what curling is. Um, something else that'll be interesting to watch is that will be hopefully one of our first chances to see the five rock rule in effect. If you haven't seen any Grand Slam events the last couple of years, the fry, the five rock rule is here. And to talk more about that, we're going to ask Jonathan to put on his Professor of Peel hat, um, since he is a certified actual curling coach, uh, to have him discuss the five rock rule uh, and how how that's going to change the way we play the game. So, Jonathan, will you take us through kind of the history of the free guard zone and how we have gotten to this five rock rule? Um, how it's going to change everything and what strategies. And then at the end, we'll give, we'll go through some strategies that club curlers uh, may want to use now that we have a five rock free guard zone. So what, what is the five rock rule and what's the history behind the free, the free guard zone to start off? All right. Do you want me to spoon feed it to you? Yes, I do. Uh, actually, should I ask questions? Should I try to be? Should I try to be like uh, like Vic and kind yeah, of sure. uh, get to it? Uh, I mean, uh, I'm not. I'm not as good at Vic. So, what have we got here? What have we got yeah. with this five? So, I, I mean, my assumption is most people know what the free guard zone rule is. If they're yeah, assume that into a curling podcast in the middle of August. Um, <laughs> so, no one's listening to this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think the the. Yeah, the five rock rule is basically moving from the four rock free guard zone to the five. So they add an extra guard. So free guard zone means the beginning of the end. You can't remove stones outside of the rings from the T line to the hog line, right? So basically Thank guards. Thank you, Wendy. And um, I mean, the history is kind of interesting. Like I'm so old, I actually start played in juniors without the free guard zone. And the free guard zone only came in, I think, my last two years. Oh, wow. So you are old. Yeah, You're not I that much older old. than me. Oh, no, myself. I'm old. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and so back back in the day, um, it was you'd hit. You just hit what you'd hit everything in sight, right? We were a junior mm-hmm. boys team. And once we figured out how to hit it hard and throw it straight, we just, you know, we got a lead and we would just hit everything in sight. And we would love to blank ends, just peel, peel, peel. Now that's, it's kind of fun. The kinetic peeling is fun, but it's boring to watch and it's not that interesting for strategy. So they, the initial variant was what was called the Moncton rule that, that the Howard brothers came up with, which was basically you can't remove any stones from play anywhere during the first four shots of the end, but eventually they decide to just limit that to the guard area. Okay. Um, and actually I think, 
it was initially seen as being too aggressive, the Moncton rule, but I actually think it's better for the game. I could, I could talk for like an hour about that. But basically, <laughs> the problem with the Moncton rule is people would just freeze stuff in the house and then blast. Mm-hmm. So actually, the free guard zone is a lot better for, for generating offense. And the reason it was put in was to create more offense, to make it more interesting for TV and uh, to make it more strategically interesting. Because if you if you you weren't watching curling in the early 90s, but basically from Pat Ryan on, the teams would just peel everything in sight. And it was becoming a bit of a boring peel fest. And, uh, you know, like uh, Kevin Martin in the, in the briar, the first briar he won, he actually called for his, for Don Bartlett to throw through in the second end. Cause they'd scored two in the first. Oh, wow. But that's how defensive it was. Right. So, so. so how much, how much of that was because the ice got better and they stopped using corn broom. So you didn't have corn chaff. Like, yeah, I assume I th- that kind of played into it because before, if you put up a corner guard and you tried to peel that out in, say, the 60s, there was a chance that you could pick on a piece of corn chaff and the guard is still there, right? And then that yeah, you could went away. You could drop – and you, teams would actually deliberately spread corn. And actually, Kevin Martin was notorious for doing that early in the day, <laughs> back in the day too. But you could definitely spread corn on the ice. The corn wasn't – and that would kind of slow it down, make it a bit swingier. Actually, late 80s, early 90s championship ice was pretty straight. It's really only kind of post-free guard zone that a lot of the swings kind of Hmm. got into the sport too. But um, And so because it was so straight, that actually made peeling even easier. Like you could just put put the broom exactly where you wanted it and just fire it down there. And, uh, so that was, I mean, that was basically it. It just devolved into a peel thing. Now, the thing that's interesting is the rule initially was split. So Canada was three rock free guard zone. Okay. And that was, I think from 93 to 2000, something like that. Maybe if someone's listening, they they can correct us by tweeting at us. But like basically the nineties were three rock free guard zone in Canada, maybe 98. Uh, and then, no, not 98. I'll get to why in a second. And then um, the the worlds went to four rock free guard zone. And one of the things that was interesting about that is that when the when curling got in the Olympics and Canada had its trials in 98, Mike Harris won. And he was, he was a good competitive curler from around Canada, but hadn't really been to a briar and wasn't quite, he wasn't the favorite going into the, the trials, to say the least. But he played a really aggressive style of play, and that style of play was more suited to the four rock free guard zone. So the te- the teams that were favored, like someone like Martin or Burtnick or somebody else, that were a bit more defensive oriented, I think that kind of Harris caught them off guard by playing a more aggressive style. And the fact the rule had changed, the teams weren't that familiar with the new rule. It allowed a team like Harris to sneak in and, and kind of win the trials and go to the Olympics. So. Then Canada switched to the four rock and it's basically been four rock ever since. Now, so yeah. a good 18 years. Uh, and is it 25 years of FGZ? And so really the five rock was cooked up in the slams. I think the first one was like 2011 or something like that. The first time they did it. So, and the thinking there was basically the top, top teams now can, even with four guards, they've gotten so good at the ticks and they've gotten yeah. so good at the run doubles and kind of the clearing shots that even even that's not enough to get enough offense at that level. So the five rocks where they're kind of going to go to now. So 
that's the history of it. Is it um is is there really going to be that much of a difference between 4 Rock and 5 Rock? For it, let's, well, I, I guess uh, it depends let's what that, level. Let's put that into two. Is there going to be a difference between watching high competitive 5 Rock versus 4 Rock and is there going to be and I think I know the answer to this. Is there going to be much of a difference at the club level uh switching to 5 Rock? Uh, high watching. I think there's going to be a pretty big difference. I, I, I've, I haven't got the stats in front of me, but the, I think the WCF put a report or something up on their website when they were deliberating and the number of blank ends has definitely gone down. Mm-hmm. The number of big ends goes up. So from a TV perspective, you want to avoid those blank ends and you want to have big scoring ends and both those definitely become a lot more possible with the uh, five rock free guard zone. So that's one big difference. I think the other thing is there's been a longstanding, I wouldn't say argument, but one of the reasons Canada didn't go to the four rock versus the three rock is that the odd numbered free guard zone actually creates an equal number of number of guards per team. Right? So that, that sounds a bit weird, but if you think about the four rock free guard zone, the team without hammer gets two guards, okay. two, two kind of protected guards, and the team with hammer only gets one. There's been an okay. argument for a long time that actually gives a slight advantage to the team without hammer. Yeah. Uh, and so That's one of the arguments Canada said is we want the three rock because then each team gets one guard. And back then, I think talking about five guards was seen as too ridiculous. But now, basically, the thinking is, well, each team gets two guards. So basically, if you're behind, regardless of if you have the hammer or not, you know you're going to get two protected guards to set up an end. So that's the that's kind of the thinking behind it at that level. At the club level, I I mean, to be honest, when I'm playing club level curling and I'm skipping... I, I basically ignore the free guard zone. And what, what I mean by that is my first call 80, 90% of the time is to just have the player drawn to the rinks. Cause like the, there's, you know, your, your average club curl is about a 50% shooter. You're, that means that I'm going to get a, I'm going to get three or four misses in an end. So I don't need to set up guards to get offense. I can just kind of drop into the house get a good position and then guard. So that's, that's my kind of default club level strategy. I think <laughs> you that- reverse. Yeah. That, and that's uh, the, especially playing on arena ice. Uh, I would, the, what I was kind of taught was on arena ice, you don't call a guard because they just kind of happen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a whole episode about the Wild Amigo someday. Yes, our, our arena that, may be, that may be our next one. <laughs> so oh. that was a strategy Ryan and I cooked up for arena ice. And because the ice conditions are so bad, the shooting quality is uneven. Uh, you don't – imitating kind of by-the-book strategy doesn't really work under arena conditions, I don't think. No. So, so I think that kind of also applies here. Like I think the Five Rock – free guard zone probably will not be noticed aside from the fact that the players at the club level are going to have to be mindful of that extra guard in play yeah. and not, and more often than not, it's not peeling the guard. It's that someone hits the guard out of play by accident. So yep. have to that's, what, that's the way it is. That's the way it is at our level. Yeah. So I think that's like from that level, it's not, I mean, I, I guess top level, it depends what you mean by club level curler, right? Like I'm thinking, you know, arena club, you know, recreational leagues, 
you know, top flight, like a, a flight or a league teams or competitive or cash league teams and clubs in North America or Scotland, like at that level, the, the strategies do start to come into play a bit more. So at that level, I'd say, yeah, you've got to kind of rethink some of your strategies a bit. What are some of the strategies you think that we will see from those high end teams that may trickle down to the club level? So, I've, so I'm, it's interesting. I was Googling before and I, there's very little out there on five rock free guard zone strategies, okay. which is, which is a bit surprising because it's been a year. So I sure put a blog a book. <laughs> you could, you could write a book. I, I wrote like a, a post. So, which we will and I'll put it up on the webpage, but um, I think, well, I wrote down four and then a fifth one kind of occurred to me after. So, okay. The four are the ones that I've kind of seen from watching high-level curling over the last couple of years. So teams kind of um, using these. Some of them are actually pretty old or they're kind of old curling tricks that that actually work really well. Uh, and some of them are kind of work specifically with the free guard zone. So the first ones, I think most people assume that the default, um, if you're behind, mm-hmm. right? So you need to generate offense, you have hammer. Most people assume that the default strategy then is the one you see in the four rock, which is put a corner guard on either side of the house, get yep. the split set up, and then split your points and go from there. I think that's like a totally fine, justified strategy. But I'm actually more interested in kind of what strategies come into play because of them, because of the, the rule change. And so to me, the first one that's really interesting is what I call the delayed corner guard, which okay. is... You don't put the corner guard up on your first shot, but you put it up on your second. And so what I mean by this is assume the team without hammer is leading or it's tied and they're playing a defensive strategy. They're going to try to put something in the rings, probably top four. Rather than throwing the corner guard up right away because you get two guards, one option for a team is let's hit that guard in the rings. And actually not just hit the guard in the rings, but ideally what you want to do is hit it and roll it off to one side. Mm -hmm. So their top four, if you can just visualize now, your shooter then rules out to the, the ideal shot would be like 12 foot T-line. They then hit that. So if they roll back towards the center, they're going to be back four. If they stick out in the wings, they're going to be out in the wings. And then you throw up a corner guard on the other side. Okay. And what that does is now you've removed the threat that the other team's trying to establish in the middle in the control zone and you set up a scoring opportunity on the side. So, and you know, so it's kind of an interesting, interesting kind of strategy there. I call that kind of like moderately aggressive five rock free guard zone strategy. Okay. And the other team's got to decide. Your your goal there is to have one of their rocks behind the tee preferably off to the wings and then your corner guard when they're throwing yeah. their what when they're about to throw their third or what uh yeah, when they're about to throw their third okay. and that team's got to make a set of choices right so mm-hmm. do they throw another one top four to sit two we'll got, i'll get to one of the other options but one is going behind the corner guard what are the it kind of creates a bit more risk and reward there right so okay. kind of thinking about that from that perspective but for you with hammer, what what if I'm skip, what I like about that setup is play is now away from the center, and I've got a chance to generate offense in two spots. Mm-hmm. So I can use the corner guard that's gonna have to be there after the five after the, the fourth shot. 
or you can play right in front of that rock that's behind t exactly so you can freeze over there so now you've got two things you can use and neither of them are really threatening for a steal so you're basically allows you to set up for a deuce pretty easily without taking much risk in my mind um so countering that right so the second one that i think is going to come back and this is actually a really old school strategy it's kind of a Teams out of Winnipeg really like this. I actually okay. saw Jeff Stoughton use it against Quebec in like a briar maybe a decade ago, and the Quebec team <laughs> basically had no idea what to do with this. It was pretty. It was a pretty interesting end, uh, and it was. Um, Tell me if you find the YouTube of that. That might be. That's got to be somewhere, right? Maybe. Uh, it's probably somewhere, but it's basically it's just cutting off the corner guard. So this was is what it means. What it's called, and so same same thing. Manitoba's leading in the game. They go top four. Quebec puts up the corner guard. Stoughton then draws behind the corner guard. Right? And okay. Quebec didn't know what to do. Because they they'd played, it was it was a funny interesting end to watch. They had a lot of talk back and forth. But basically, if you there's a way in which we kind of get stuck in patterns of strategy. Like we just say, oh, I'm gonna do this, they're gonna do that, they're gonna do that. And mm-hmm. if the other team does something you're not expecting, that can really throw a team for a loop. And so Stoughton. Stoughton did this. It was like the eighth or ninth end of the game. And uh, he he generated a really easy force. Like by the end of it, Manitoba was sitting three or four. And all Quebec had was draw to a button in the, the draw and gently tap a button, uh, like the Manitoba rock and get the force. That's what Stoughton was going for. So he, he basically set up the force by doing this. So cutting off the corner guard, simply the team put the corner guard there. They want to use it. You want to draw to a spot that makes it really hard for them to draw behind that corner guard. Now you're sitting two rocks in play, and the other team's got to respond somehow. So um, I didn't know. I didn't it, know that this was like a specific strategy, but it's one that I use in arena curling. Is if they're if they're trying to draw in and they accidentally leave us a corner guard, I'm going right behind that, even if I don't have hammer. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely do it. Yeah, it's definitely there. Like, you don't, you don't have to, like, you don't have to follow the rules. I think, or, or the, what I call the road strategy, right? Like, most elite level curling strategy right now is really boring for the first five or six shots. Like, there's going to be a center guard going yeah. up. The other team's going to go around. The other team's going to freeze on that. They're going to freeze on that. And it's only when they get a, one of the teams gets a little angle they like, that's when the strategy starts getting interesting in an end. Right. I think that the five rock, at least at the beginning, is going to open up a lot more possible openings and kind of force a lot more thinking early on in the end. It's not going to be so by the book anymore. So, yeah, you, you can definitely go behind the opponent's corner guard, even if you don't have last rock. Right. The same way that teams come around the center guard when they have hammer, it's just basically now applied to the wing. So so one way of thinking about it is the five rock free guard zone you can actually take a lot of the strategies that have been applied to the center of the ice and apply them off to the wings now. Does that include like putting up a, a staggered corner guard? Yeah, so that's, exa- that's another example. There's, this one's actually kind of been used. I've, I've seen it way more in Scotland than back in North America. It's, I, I, I played a game against Ewan McDonald and he he dropped it on me in a game. And I, it, I mean, it's... I, I, I was playing, you know, you're playing a guy who's a world champ. It's already mm-hmm. intimidating. And then he did that on purpose. And I was like, I do not like, I don't know why he called it, but I don't <laughs> like that. He called it was kind of my <laughs> response, right? Like I was sitting two in the forefoot and he's got a double corner guard up. And sure enough, he basically very patiently waited until later in the end. 
and ruled behind that double that double corner guard and built a three ender. Oh no! And I mean, that's how that's how it goes. You got to like you know put up with. Uh, sometimes you have to have someone beat you on a strategy to understand why it why it works that way. But basically, the idea is just like you have you have a team put up two center guards, like they'll ignore whatever's happening at the wings, or they may even ignore the stones right behind in the house to set up two center guards when they're behind. Setting up two corner guards on the same side is really deadly. If you just even get a little bit staggered kind of Christmas tree position, you can hide a whole bunch of stones in yeah. there behind that and build two or three points off to that side and then kind of not really worry about the center or attack the center later on. Or leave it there early, hit and roll a rock top eight and try to roll behind that double center. Yeah, I was going to say, are you more likely to have to roll in behind it or... Is that is it, it? You can do whatever. It's just useful. Like what? What the way to think about it as a skip, or the way I think about stuff early in the end as a skip is how can I use that? Yeah. Whether it's my stone or the opponent's stone, like how can if, I, if I'm trying to generate offense, it's how can I use whatever's out there, right? So if it's an opponent rock in the ring, can I freeze to it? Can I tap it back and build a wall behind the T line? Can I? If it's up front, can I kind of sneak behind it to try to generate offense? So if you've got a double corner guard, it's going to be really tough to do a double peel and lose the shooter. So it's probably going to take mm-hmm. two just to get the, the corner thing shot, and you get time to bury there. And that, so it's a pretty easy way to generate a deuce, I think. Use the double corner guard, and then. The fourth one, and this is a strategy I saw Kyle Smith use at the Euros last year a fair bit, was, and so they're playing four rock free guard zone, but I think it works even better in five rock free guard zone, is uh, the team, if they had hammer, if the team without hammer, let's say they put a rock top four or a center guard, Smith would ignore it and put up a corner guard. And then the other team would either come around the guard or put the guard in front of their stone. Smith would ignore it again. He'd bury a stone behind the corner guard. Mm -hmm. So now he's got his second point locked in. And then the other teams really got a hard choice, right? Because they can either start clearing off the stuff that Smith's put up to try to stop him from getting two points, or they've got to spend the next six of their stones trying to protect their one in the forefoot. Because if they ever, if if Kyle ever hits a run back or gets it out of there or just does a little tap back, all of a sudden, Smith's got a pretty easy two-point score and he's got his deuce that he's looking for. So I'd say that's a bit more of an aggressive play and you've got to have players that you're confident can do a double or a run back to get the shot kind of out of there. But one option is use the free guard zone time to build up your second point, then worry about how you're going to get shot. Okay. Yeah, I like that. And actually, I think that one works really well at club level. Even though you're going to have to make a double at some point? Uh, yeah, you might have to make a double or run back. But the thing, the reason I think it works at club level, if you're kind of consistent with it, is you're probably also going to get a miss. Like the risk that Kyle's taking playing against Adin, for instance, is Adin's not going to miss, right? Yeah. So you're going to have an entire end where you've got to hit a really big shot. At club level, if I've got that thing set up to the side... All I've got to do is open up the center guard, and now I'm just looking at an open hit, or they've got to put up five straight guards in a row, right? And I actually like my odds against the club-level yeah. team saying they've got to guard a rock top four or five times in a row. I'm sure one player is going to 
at least miss enough of the rock that my team will have one or two cracks at getting that stone out of there. And then what you, I guess what you hope for is they try to throw up a guard. It goes deep and you have a somewhat easy double, but then you might leave the shooter. Yeah, you got to double with a shooter. Like you'll you'll have your chances. It's, it's a bit more of a patient way to get your deuce. But but I say this to the juniors I coach all the time because I think one of the natural traps to fall into strategy wise is to worry about who's shot at that moment. Okay. And you know what? The only time you have to be shot is after the sixteenth rock is thrown. Right. So you yeah. don't have to be shot until your last one. I think so, I think that's something that I get because I. I haven't skipped long. In fact, this last season was the first time I had skipped in a long time. Um, and I, that was one of the things that I had to sit there and remind myself is none of this matters until the last one. Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of time to get that. I mean, to be honest, one of my more cruel strategies when I'm playing against club players, I can, I can kind of tell if a skip's like that. If, I, if they're totally locked in on shot, mm-hmm. I will deliberately let them think they have that and try to build a second, third, and fourth point, and then late in the end, try to go right after it for a five-point end. And you'd be That's- surprised, you'd be amazed the number of curlers who just fall for that trick. Like they're like, oh, I'm guarded on all this and that. And as long as I've got a shot in there, it's actually either, I'm either giving up one or scoring five. And if I did two or three ends in a row, I'm getting my five bag or somewhere along there. I am more cognizant of that when I don't have hammer than when I do. When I when I do have hammer, I kind of have to sit there and remind myself that just because they have one in the forefoot doesn't really mean anything. But when I don't have hammer, I'm very cognizant of the fact that, okay, I have one rock in the house and right now they have three. This could go very badly. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing to me how many people make that mistake, right? Like it's the ends can turn on a dime. Right. Mm-hmm. There, there was an end of the Briar this year and it was, it was Epping. Who was Epping playing? I think it was Laycock. And it was like after Epping, they were even mic'd and like Epping's lead was like, oh, we totally screwed. The, he think he even swore, right? But he was yeah. like, we totally messed up this end. And Matt Cam threw like a triple, a run double. Epping made two things. And all of a sudden, like, whereas Laycock was sitting four, it turned into an Epping five or something and game over, wow. right? Like, I think I remember that swing. end. Yeah. Huh? Do you remember I think that I end? I remember or? that end now. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone on that sheet was kind of surprised it happened. But if it happens at that level, it can definitely happen at, at club level, right? Mm-hmm. Where the shot shot, shot making is more erratic. So, um, so I mean, the more rocks in play, the more – and this is the other big difference, I think, for club curlers. The more you have to be cognizant about how big the swings are going to be, right? If you've got – like seven, eight stones in the house, and there's a there's a tricky double or some fancy shot there to pop a couple and, and lie a whole bunch. You've really got to watch out for that too. So, um, you know, offense is great, but the the one risk in curling with like big offense is uh, you can score a lot, but you can also run the risk of giving up a lot too. In fact, if I've got if I have one rock in the house and there's a chance that they can make an easy take because in an arena curling, there's not usually a whole bunch of guards in front of the house yeah like if they're like a takeout away from throwing four on me usually i usually instead of trying to make a takeout usually i'm drawing to try and put more of my my granite in the house yeah i think that's a good strategy too right like one of my old skips growing up always used to say to me the best guard sometimes is second shot right if you can get a second point in there it's not an easy double 
that's actually a really good guard too, in the sense that worst case you're you're creating a force, right? Mm-hmm. If they have hammer. Right. So yeah, thinking about what's the second counter or what's the third matters just as much and in some ways even more. Um, the one I didn't write on the blog post we're going to put up, but it's kind of, it's actually kind of what are the options for defense? So uh, I think the big puzzle for the team with without Hammer is going to be what do you do with the fifth rock, right? Because yeah. and this happened to us playing last year in the English men's, we were already on five rocks that was qualifying for the European Championships this year. So we got to play six games uh, under it. And I was playing second. And not often, but one or two times a game, I'd be like, I just want to do the run back now or the peel. Like they'd be like, you can't. <laughs> so like the habit <laughs> of like what the natural call is is gone, especially when you have a lead and you're trying to protect the lead. So um that's where it kind of gets interesting. A few times I was drawing when we had a lead and we're sitting in a position we'd normally be trying to clear stuff out. I think one of the strategies we kind of fell into was uh have if you're leading, draw top four, top eight, guard, let the other team do whatever it's doing on the side, and then clear that stuff up after, right? So okay. that's one that's one possible way to counter it. Um I, I mean, I think the tick shot's still gonna be there. It's it's probably not gonna be as decisive, but I think it's a useful tick shot. And I think the for the club player. I'd say not what I call the weagle tick shot where you're trying to hit both rocks, lose your shooter and uh, knock the opponent's stone right up like an inch from the boards. Like she's a master at that. So she can do that. But for a club level, if all you do with the tick shot is throw like back four weight and nudge the stone. So it's in the house kind of ends up being around T line or whatever. And you're hitting half of the rock and you flop over with a corner guard. That's actually a really useful shot. So I'd, I'd call that the bump tick. Okay. Where it's almost like an angle raise where you're okay. trying to get their stone into the rings. You flop over. So you get a corner guard. Now you can hit that rock in the rings, even though the free guard zone's in effect on your second shot. Are we eventually going to see them limit when and how you can do tick shots? I don't know. I mean, so we, we were chatting a bit on Twitter and uh, about like, well, we can talk about the Elam ending in a second, but it was kind of my idea. But I, I think, like personally, I think that a lot of the rules being floated around to, to kind of stop the defensive style of play are actually counterproductive. So getting rid of tick shots, I, I think it just kind of gets a bit weird. Um I think like I'm not sure if after five rock if going to six or seven makes much sense. Uh, was about, that was my the, next question: was Are we done with this madness, or do you think you'd ever, we'd ever see a six or seven rock free card zone? Well, so th- I mean, I, I I'm not like let's put it this way: curling because the last rock is so decisive, and because anytime you remove a rock from play, it can't score ever again, right? Once it's behind the mm-hmm. T-line, that stone can't ever do any damage. Defense is, in a certain sense, built into the game, right? It's just like, if you look at the rules of the game, the defensive strategy is actually the, the dominant winning strategy of everything else is kind of equal, right? If you assume that both teams curl 100%, the team with hammer, in theory, could kind of blank all the ends and, uh, you know, end up winning one nothing. Right now, it's it's very difficult to do that. But the better the ice gets, the better the athletes get. 
Um, the better the strategy gets, the better the brushing gets, the the more the more it always advantages defense, right? So there's nothing to say that we're not going to be back in 10 years' time talking about how to stop the offense of five rock free guard zone. And so my Elam ending idea is, is kind of maybe a different way to skin the cat. So uh, you know what the Elam ending is, right? Uh, I do, and we'll have to explain it to people. So this is from what is called the basketball tournament which uh, ESPN runs every year. It's professionals that aren't in the NBA um, kind of form their own teams, a la curling, and then they enter this $2 million winner-take-all basketball tournament that's just a made-for-TV event. Uh, So ESPN has uh, programming in late July and early August. Uh, I will let you explain what the Elam ending is, which they use in the basketball tournament. So is come I think it was a math professor that came up with it, right? Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's basically what's called game theory and the social science and math, which is uh, you basically, what game theory is, is trying to look at how the rules of any kind of competitive situation shape the behavior of all the people in that situation. So it comes out of games, but it can be applied to a whole bunch of things. We do it a little bit of it in political science. So (laughs) that's why I find it interesting. What he wanted to do was fix what he called negative play at the end of games, which is stuff like lots of timeouts, lots of intentional fouls, right? So anyone's watched like the end of a professional or college basketball game, the last two minutes takes, you know, upwards of 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, right. Easily. And unless if you're a real basketball fan, maybe it's interesting and dramatic, but it's actually not kind of positive flow of play. And the other thing is teams deliberately play very defensively, right? So they stop trying to score. They try to run down clock, right? So it's a similar problem to what curling faces, which is once you have a lead late in the game, you're naturally going to try to um, play very defensively. Right. So the genius of the Elam ending is I'm not sure the exact rule is after the fourth minute, the next whistle stops the clock. Is that correct? Correct. After what they call the last media timeout, which comes after uh, after it's under four minutes to play in the game, uh, they turn they turn the clock off and the goal is to get to whatever you you have a a score you have to reach, which is seven additional points to whichever team is ahead. So if the if we get to the last media timeout and uh, Virginia Tech is beating Virginia uh, 70 to 63, it now becomes first team to 77 points wins. Yeah. And so automatically that shifts every team's behavior, right? Because they mm-hmm. both have a target they have to hit on offense. So it, it compels them to score X number of points. And you can't foul because you're putting the other team on the free throw line and giving them the opportunity to get to that target with no, well, no, the clock's turned off, but yeah, the opportunity to get to that target on free throws uh, rather than having to run their offense. Yeah. And the other thing that's really good about it is the game has to end on a score. Yes. So like basically it doesn't have a buzzer beater because there's no more clock, but every game is every game ends on a game winner. Right. It was exciting so to think watch. About it, I won't lie. it was I tuned in to a few of those games because of because they were playing with these rules to see how it was going to play out. And it was it was a lot more exciting. 
Yeah. And so my thoughts exactly applying that to curling, right? So what don't we like in curling late games is tick shots, one team trying to run the other team out of rocks. And if a team has a slight lead, right, it's, to, it's basically over. Like the world hammer in the eighth or tenth. Yeah, like watching watching the world championship this year. You know, it, it's not unfair that Adin won, but Gushu like pulled the string on one draw and it was over. Right mm-hmm. from that point on, Adin was just blasting everything in sight. It wasn't an interesting game after the fourth end, right? Um, so my thought is just like the Elam ending, at some set point, and in my mind, it's the sixth end. I guess maybe the eighth end of his ten end game, but let's say two ends to go. You then say, okay, whatever team's leading, add. I would say three points. We could kind of argue about like how many points, but I kind of like the idea of three points. Add three points and say that's the target. And so the first team to score that many points wins. So the team that's leading has the advantage of they have less of a distance to go, but they still have to score points. Whereas the team that's trailing has to come back, but because the team that's leading has to put rocks in play to try to score those points, incentivizes offense all the way to the end of the game. So my counter to that is you could wind up playing four hours. Because let's Why say would you play four hours. Let's say you're playing to ten ends. And after the eighth end, uh, you add three points to whoever's ahead. So if I'm, if my team is losing uh, six to two, so now yeah. it's first team to 10, right? Yeah. We could play eight more ends of me taking one and then stealing, steal, 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 steal to get to, and you know, you could even throw Two more ends in there where you take one, but I'm sitting there yeah. going, take one, take one, steal, 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 steal. You could wind up playing, you know, what What would that be? That would be something like 15, 16 ends. Yeah. I'm not watching that. Oh, that could be good. No? I'm not watching that. You wouldn't be like, because don't you think that, like, imagine that scenario, like, not like a club level, right? I don't think we need a club level oh, play no. anyway. Oh, but God. on TV, <laughs> huh? But on TV, imagine, like that's like a dramatic. Like, what's the best thing to watch? I'm like, all right, one of my favorite college football games of all time is the what was it, the two thousand and so two thousand seven Fiesta Bowl where the Sooners lost in kind of like triple overtime. Uh oh, the Boise State game, yeah. The Boise State Sooners one, right? Yeah. Where it's like this upset comeback kind of thing, yeah. right? The trick plays at the end, uh, right? Yeah, like Boise, the best thing Boise, in sports is a ran, comeback. Boise State ran a hook and ladder to get the game into overtime, and then in overtime ran two more trick plays, one to score their touchdown, and then two to score their walk-off two-point conversion to beat Oklahoma in the Yeah, and then the guy went and proposed to his girlfriend cheerleader. Yes. Ah, it, was, it was great TV, right? That was great TV, but the game ended. <laughs> Yeah, the end game, game ended, right? But it's the same thing. The same thing here, right? Like I think if it's six two, if you've got to score eight points, and the other team's only got to score, uh, you got to score seven points, I guess. The other team's still got to score three. The drama of that is kind of pretty interesting. No? It is, but it could result in just a really long curling game. You think so? Yeah, well, yeah. Like, if I'm sitting there having to, if I sit there and I manage to steal six ends in a row to win that game, 
How long is that going to yeah. take? Plus, you have to think if I'm setting up and getting a steal in each of those ends, those ends are taking a long dang time. I don't know. So that's six. So that's a 12 end game. That's not that. No, if we're not that if, if, if we're playing, if we're playing 10 end curling, if this is if you and I are playing each other in the briar. No, I would do it in the briar and I'd go six ends, then Elam ending. Six ends in the Because you don't know. So then in, Elam ending. So it could be. So in the right? slams, in eight end curling, you'd do it after the fourth end. Yeah, maybe. Or they could just do six ends too. I, I think that basically, my thought is that this means the game ends in most cases somewhere in that six to 10 end range game, right? Like next, it could be a walk off next end, right? Three point end, game over. It could be. Or. <laughs> Or you sit there and play forever. Yeah, but I think that's unlikely, right? It's unlikely, but... Like, like, when it happens like that, it's a bit like one of those crazy Wimbledon games which goes like 17-15, right? Yeah. It's... Right? And it's, it's actually dramatic because the team thinks they've put it away, but then the other team claws back, claws back, claws back. I don't know. You're not sold? I'm not sold at all. All right. Well, we'll see if we get any response on the Twitter machine. Right. See if anyone's so, down. Explain it again. The explain ending. the curling Elam ending again, and then we'll have people contact us and let us let them let us know what they think. Explain it one All more right. time. So, after the sixth end, whatever team's leading, you add three points to their score, and that becomes the target. So, if the score is six four, let's say after six mm-hmm. ends, the first team to score nine wins the game. So there's no extra ends. There's not a possibility of a tie. You don't need the one stone shootout. So if you and both teams, both teams have to play uh, offensively to try to score those points. Well, if you have hammer though, you don't want to take your single. If you're if it looks like if it looks like your deuce isn't set up, you can try to get a blank in wide and six. No, after after it. Like if you've got if you're having to get to three points, and yeah. you have the hammer, that's a good point. Yeah, if you yeah if you're trying to get those three points, so and you here's have what the I hammer, do then. You're All right, wanting- I'd add one more wrinkle: mixed doubles rules kicks in for hammer. So what you're we're putting rocks in play? So if you blank it in, you lose hammer. Oh well, well. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You would have to do that. Yeah, yeah, if I've got if I've got hammer, I'm not taking my single. I'm going to sit there and try to blank until I have a deuce. Yeah, up. yeah. So you, you just fix it that way, right? But the idea is you're basically upping the offense in the last three ends and forcing everyone to score, right? All right. So we'll end on that. What is your take on the curling Elam ending that Jonathan has come up with? You can get a hold of us at curling podcast on Twitter or email us at rocks across the pond at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter. We like when you, when you, we like when you tweet at us, uh, you can, uh, listen to us, uh, leave a review on iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, tune in and wherever you listen to podcasts, please. Uh, if you like us, uh, let us know. Um, you can find us, as I said, on Twitter, as well as SoundCloud and Facebook. Um, thank you for listening to us, uh, and we will see you soon. It's almost curling season. How about that?